In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So one of the things I regret about my time growing up in Canada is that I have no memory of seeing the Northern Lights. Edmonton, where I spent my childhood, is 340 miles north of the border between Canada and the States. And so it wasn't uncommon at that latitude to get a few nights every winter where the Aurora Borealis was visible. It's the kind of thing you take for granted when it is so readily available. I would have had to get a little distance from the city itself, though, in order to see it. Edmonton may not be as big as Chicago. Well, it isn't as big as Chicago. But there were at least three quarters of a million people living there at the time, so light pollution was still a factor. The biblical authors, when they wrote of stars in the sky, did so in a world in which every evening would have looked like those picturesque moments we only get when we leave the suburbs for the wilderness. We shouldn't imagine our own night sky when reading their reactions to looking up at the stars. The metaphor God gives to Abraham about the extent to which his family would grow is a lot less potent when you can only make out little bits of the Big Dipper. That vast image, though, of the starry sky is given the second time God makes the promise to Abraham. This morning, we read of God's first encounter with him, then only Abram, which is short and sweet, both the name and the encounter. We don't get much context for who this man is other than his genealogy. He's a nobody. Noah is at least a somebody. He gets his call because he's righteous in a land of wickedness. Abram is just a guy. He has shown no unique gifting or skill set, no particular signs of righteousness. In fact, after he is called in the subsequent chapters, he makes a great many unrighteous decisions, frequently trusting in his own cunning instead of the promise made to him by this unknown God. He's one of three brothers. He's married, but he and Sarai are unable to have children, which means their lineage is going nowhere. And the two of them are traveling with Abram's father and his nephew. Now, in the biblical story up until this point, we've seen God's good creation marred by sin. We've seen sin wreak havoc on the earth. God is grieved by what he sees and wipes the slate clean with a flood, saving one family to repopulate. But those descendants continue to rebel against God, trying to establish a monument to their own glory in the Tower of Babel. And God has to intervene again in order to spread them across the world. Again and again, sin infects humanity. And a few generations later comes Abram. And it is to this nobody that God makes a stunning promise to make him into a great nation, to bless him, and to bless those who bless him. But the promise isn't just to bless him. It's not just for his benefit. The promise to Abram is God's plan to undo the effects of sin. Humanity had embraced their descent back into the nothingness from which they were created. And God says, no. I will take this family, and through them, the world will be blessed. Through them, I will push back against the curse. Abraham, as God will eventually rename him, becomes an important figure in New Testament theology. When we read Paul talking about the law and justification, he's answering this question. When God returns, who is going to be found to be in the right? Who is going to be justified? And the answer is, well, God's people. But of course, There's an important follow-up question, who is God's people? Who are those people? And to that question, Paul and Jesus both go not to the law that distinguished the people of Israel from their neighbors, but to this original ancestor. Jesus talks about raising up from the stones themselves descendants of Abraham. And when he defends himself for healing on the Sabbath, he says, 
Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it to water? Then should not this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, be released from her bondage on the Sabbath day? Paul argues in Galatians and in Romans that the promise to Abraham, who is the father of many nations, predates and is therefore superior to the law. Now, Paul's making his case for the equality between Jewish and Gentile Christians, something that certainly matters to those of us who are not Israelites by birth, but follow the Israelite Messiah. But for our purposes this morning, my big takeaway is this. When you want to know whether or not you belong to God, whether or not you are going to be justified, to be found in the right, the place to which you appeal is not the way in which you follow the special revelation God gave to you. You appeal to a promise made to an ungodly nobody and say, I am one of his people, one of his descendants. Think of the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night, and he says that it's clear to the Pharisees, a group to which Jesus himself might have had some interactions with, that there was something special about this rabbi from Galilee. We know, he says, that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. We can tell, he is saying, by the things that you are doing, that you are one of God's people, that God's presence is with you. And what is Jesus' reply? No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born from above. Born again, born anew, not born into their original birthright, but a new birth, a new family. While Nicodemus wanted to appeal to Jesus' actions, Jesus pivots to a conversation about faith and new birth. Jesus elaborates then by invoking the story of the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. This is the only time that this story shows up in the New Testament. And it's this Old Testament story in which the Israelites were rebelling against God, grumbling in the wilderness, and God sent poisonous snakes among them. The way in which God offered healing for those who got sick from snake bites was for Moses to make this bronze serpent, lift it up on a pole, and put it in the midst of the people. And anyone who looked at that serpent, that bronze serpent, would be healed. So in what way is Jesus' crucifixion, his lifting up, like this event with the serpent? In both of these cases, the problem is that the people who were meant to be the solution to the problem of the sickness of sin in the world, they themselves became infected. In both cases, the way in which the people are healed is that they must look up and face their sin directly, not because they can heal themselves, but in order that God might do it. N.T. Wright puts it this way, the evil which was and is in the world, deep-rooted within us all, was somehow allowed to take out its full force on Jesus. When we look at him hanging on the cross or lifted up, as John says here, what we are looking at is the result of the evil in which we are all stuck, and we are seeing what God has done about it. We want so much for God to like us because we are good. We want so much for our righteousness or maybe our uniqueness to be the basis upon which God is pleased with us. We believe in him just like everyone else, and we're certainly still evangelical enough to say everyone else believes in God the same way, all these other churches. But we want to think that we believe him in him better than others do. There's something about our faith that's just a little bit more honest or more true or, heaven forbid, more cool. It's one of the most basic pieces of theology, though, that we need to constantly remind ourselves. We can't save ourselves from sin, and so God chose to save us. As Wright puts it, all Abraham did was trust the God who declares the ungodly to be in the right. 
The God who looks at humanity suffering from the universal disease called sin that we brought upon ourselves and chooses to give us an opportunity for healing and for new birth. As Paul says in our reading from Romans today, God is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God makes something out of nothing, and yet we consistently believe that what he was doing is taking our something and making it better. Or maybe worse, taking our something and not needing to transform it at all because of how great we are already. As Father James said last week, the wilderness is not a place where we want to live. It's not a place suitable for living. We don't want to stay here, but while we are here, maybe we can gain some perspective. See, we understand a meritocracy. We understand working to prove your worth. We've built a whole country on the hope that anyone can work their way into success. And I won't comment on whether or not I think that ideal currently exists or if it's a good way to envision a country, certainly not from the pulpit. But I will say it's a terrible foundation upon which to form our identity as a church. It's debatable whether or not first century Jews really believed in what we now call a works-based righteousness. But I think we can look at ourselves now, at our churches now, maybe even our church and ourselves, and we can see that there are ways in which we have created the Christianity that has adopted that straw man as our own, that God really cares about all the good things we do, and that's what makes us right in his eyes. We may not believe that our own actions earn our salvation, but we certainly think our good taste has earned us a privileged spot among the outposts within the kingdom of heaven. As usual, I speak to myself as much as to any of you. In my first thoughts about this sermon, I pictured Lent uh, as this time when we dial up the knowledge of our own sin so that God can meet us with his grace. We turn up the, the sin on the equalizer and then God turns up grace. But I'm no sound engineer, but I know that when you turn up both your high and low channels, you don't get a good sound at the end. That's not how you get a good balance. That's not how you get a quality sound. Lent, our season of fasting and reflection, is not a season of ratcheting up our hatred of ourselves so that God can then overwhelm us with an increased amount of grace. Instead, Lent is a season in which we dial down our self-righteousness to make way for us to hear what we were tuning out because of the volume of our ego, and that is God's love. Like the light pollution that clouds our view of the stars, Lent is a journey into the wilderness to get away from the haze of self-justification, to get a clear view of who we really are. And once we do that, once we get away from the monument we've built to our own glory and we get into the wilderness, we can see the wonder of the stars which have always been shining all along. We just haven't been able to see them. God's grace is not dialed up to meet our sin. God's grace is a constant it is in his nature to have mercy. And it's when we realize our inability to be the justified people in our own strength that we can then receive the grace that he offers and are then invited to participate in the work that he wants to do in our lives. That's how we become more like God's blessed people who he uses to bless. It all happens not because of our faithfulness, but because of Christ's faithfulness. We belong to God, and we believe that on the last day we, we will be found to be in the right because of Jesus, because God looked at the world in its utter brokenness and chose to save it from itself. He knew full well what we are like, what we would be like, our true selves which are exposed in the cold and harsh reality of the wilderness, and in that full knowledge and love of us that he was still content to die for us. It is only from that place of honesty that we can properly receive grace from him 
and become the blessing that God wants to bestow upon the world. And when we do that, that's when we begin to truly live. The eternal life that Jesus spoke of to Nicodemus that evening was not simply one we hope to attain one day in the life of the world to come, but one that we receive now. Just like the Israelites gazing upon the bronze serpent, hoping to be healed, as soon as we look at the cross, we receive from God the constant love and grace, the antidote for the sin that infects us. And so this Lent, may God help us to get out of our flawed and self-centered and self-righteous shelters that we put up to drown out the honest picture of ourselves so that we can have a clear, unpolluted picture of his grace and that we may then be made into his people through the merits of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen.